This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of A Dog Named Mattis, 12 Lessons for Living Courageously, Serving Selflessly, and Building Bridges from a Heroic Canine Officer, written and narrated by Sergeant Mark Tappan, available now everywhere. Welcome to The Table Podcast, where we discuss issues of God and culture, brought to you by Dallas Theological Seminary. Welcome to The Table. We discuss issues of God and culture, and our topic today are people on the move, uh, diaspora, people, refugees, that that topic about which you hear a variety of things, but which at the same time is important uh, is an important uh, conversation to have for Christians who are able to minister uh, into these situations. And uh, our guest today is uh, Jeff Palmer. Jeff, tell us uh, tell us what you do and uh, why we're talking to you about this. What what's your current ministry? Right. Thanks, Dr. Bach. Thanks for having us on today. Um, I work with Baptist Global Response, BGR. I'm executive director. Uh, BGR exists to uh, help uh, communities and people around the world experience a more satisfying and abundant life. Uh, we deal with uh, disaster relief and community development, relief and development strategies. So uh, today we might be addressing the earthquake issues in Ecuador and helping our partners there respond to that earthquake. And uh, tomorrow we might be addressing uh, chronic hunger needs in sub-Saharan Africa or human trafficking issues over in South Asia. Uh, we would do about 350 to 400 projects per year, 65 to 70 different countries, uh, helping with food, water, shelter, uh, livelihood skills, training, literacy, um, all kinds of things to help people in need, whether those needs are from acute issues of earthquake, famine, and disasters, or chronic issues of hunger, poverty, uh, and the such. Oh, wow. So how long have you been doing this? Uh, well, we've been doing it quite a while. Uh, BGR, Baptist Global Response, has only been in existence for about uh, eight years now. Uh, and uh, I was uh, privileged uh, working with a team of others to kind of get it up uh, off the ground and started and running. Uh, before that, uh, we served uh, with International Mission Board as Southern Baptist missionaries uh, in Asia, primarily for a little bit over 20 years. And uh, my background's agriculture, and uh, my wife is healthcare, so we use agriculture healthcare strategies, like the things we do with BGR today, uh, and worked with tribal and uh, Muslim people groups in the Southern Philippines and pretty much all over. Uh, Asia, Central Asia, and uh, South Asia. So we come back with, oh, 25, 30 years of experience uh, uh, in meeting human needs and uh, helping people uh, encounter Christ. So uh, as we think about people movements, of course, um, today, uh, one of the largest people movements is taking place in the Middle East with uh, people who are who are um, leaving because of the war-ravaged situation there. Uh, talk a little bit about what that situation is and what it's like, and give and if you could give a little background for how we how we got here. Uh, and, and what I have in mind in particular are the countries that to which people have gone and the conditions under which they live. All right. Well, I mean, it's a it's a long story, and, uh, and it's a very complicated one. If you remember about six or seven years ago, we started seeing the first signs of Arab 
spring in you know various places of the world, Libya, Egypt, and uh, other countries in the Middle East, and uh, you had these kind of popular uprisings um, uh, against, uh, uh, I guess the best way to say it is strong men and strong, you know, uh, 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 strong powers within governments, and. Uh, uh, what we're seeing uh, right now is kind of an offshoot of that, especially in the Syria, northern Iraq area, uh, where you had uh, a government that had been in power for decades, and uh, there was a kind of a populist uprising. And then you had that government kind of, uh, you know, holding on to control and still uh, holding on control today. Um, and in the midst of that, with other world powers, I won't get into those details, kind of mm. getting involved. You had the rise of this uh, kind of a radical group uh, that was called ISIL, now we call ISIS, that uh, uh, has created this uh, massive movement of folks from that part of the world. Uh, you, know, have, you have people that move because of economic reasons. That happens it's happened from time immemorial. You have people that move because of uh, drought and environmental pressures. Uh, uh, environmental pressures. Uh, today, in the Syria crisis and Middle East crisis and in, in northern Iraq, we're basically seeing 12 to 14 million people on the move because they're forcibly displaced, which is a little bit different situation. And um, there's not enough time to talk about all the various reasons why they're forcibly displaced. And when you talk to these folks, it doesn't really matter whether it's a good guy or a bad guy shooting at them. Somebody's shooting mm -hmm. or or bombs being dropped, or threats are there. And so uh, now you're seeing out of a country of 20, 22, 24 million people, you're seeing you know, at least half of that population on the move. Many of that's still moving inside the country, uh, but uh, many of those are also moving outside the country to, uh, to, to various areas. Okay, well, so I've got 12 million people on the move, possibly half the size of the country, and obviously someone's got to absorb that movement. Um, so where are they going? Well, well, again, over half of those are inside the country. They're moving inside. They're going to either safe corridors or they're going to areas that are controlled by one faction or another. So do keep in mind the majority of those on the move are still within the country. We call those internally displaced peoples or IDP. They're still forcibly displaced, but they're internally displaced. Then you've got another, you know, it depends upon the... The, the numbers, the official numbers and the unofficial numbers, probably another five to six million people that are outside of the country. Uh, they're generally moving, um, uh, the majority are in countries that are bordering areas. Uh, so they're moving into places like northern Jordan. They're moving over into Lebanon. They're moving northward into Turkey. Uh, they're moving into places like Armenia. You had several that would move over into northern Iraq, and then it got bad there, and they're moving back. And so you have some that have moved about three or four different times back and forth mm. into areas. But they're also fleeing into uh, other places like uh, Egypt, uh, which is a country that's absorbing uh, quite a few of the, of, of the refugees. When they come out of the country, we call them refugees. Now, there's official refugee status and there's unofficial. Uh, and uh, then they're moving into Europe, uh, looking for either long-term security, better life, very, very di different things. They're looking, for, they're, they're trying to get away from the, the crisis that, that's caused them to leave. And so you're 
we're seeing countries like uh, Greece that are uh, have been absorbing refugees and now absorbing them at a high rate. Uh, Croatia, Macedonia, Germany, uh, just about every major European country, and a few of them are actually trickling and making it over here, uh, even to the United States uh, and Canada. So. Um, we'll talk about BGR's involvement with these groups in a moment, but um, but this uh, migration is really a significant in a variety of ways. Um, my understanding is, you can tell me if I'm right about this, that Lebanon now houses uh, almost as many or as many refugees as it does citizens, that the, that the number is pretty close. Is that fair or is that an exaggeration? I, I think the numbers that, that we've seen lately, it's about one out of every four uh, people living in Lebanon are actually uh, uh, refugees. Now, uh, from the current crisis, you have to remember uh, Lebanon absorbed uh, several Palestinians 50 to 60 years ago. That's right. Uh, and so when you add that in together, you, you'll, you'll get that number will go up higher. I don't know if it's quite half of the country, but it is a large population. Yeah, that, and I was referring to both of those together, that Lebanon basically has been a receptacle over many decades for people who are displaced in the Middle East. Well, and, and do remember, too, that the folks coming out of Syria, the, they're the lot people, which uh, their family tree goes to the same folks in Lebanon and northern Jordan. It's, it's, it's kind of an area of the world that there's a lot of kinship there. And so that it's a natural gravitation to go to those areas. Okay, so obviously there, there are countries that are dealing with this in the Middle East. And we, you know, we're so far away, separated by an ocean from Europe, that we tend not to appreciate what's going on. There, but uh, the absorption of refugees into Europe has also produced um, significant pressures on the European continent. Fair? Yes. Yeah. Fair. Uh, it's it, and it's fair to say that it's, it's created significant uh, pressures on the whole world. You know, as a as a whole. Um, uh, but you, you'll see, you know, um, uh, governments like Germany now that are opening up. I think the numbers I saw maybe up to a hundred thousand, maybe even more. Uh, uh, Greece has absorbed because Gr Greece is actually one of those first entry points into Europe and the European Union. Mm -hmm. um, a, a lot of folks that are coming through these areas are are still mobile. I mean, they're forcibly displaced. They're going there, but they're on the move to somewhere else. Maybe they've got family members in a particular country in Europe. Maybe they got family members in the U.S. or Canada or somewhere. Uh, but, but again, they're trying to get to somewhere better. Mm -hmm. uh, it could be for safety, could be for, uh, a lot of it's for safety, a lot of it's for economics, a lot of the perception of the future is not going to get any better. So we want just a place to, you know, raise our family in peace and have a place that, you know, we can lay down and, you know, we know that someone's not going to come in and take us and our children away. Yeah, I imagine that the um, human psychological toll for someone who's in the midst of this is pretty great. I mean, I, I ask myself, what would it take for me to leave everything that I have behind, basically, except what I can carry with me, go to a foreign country uh, where the customs are different, where I don't even know the language in many cases, and decide, okay, I'm I. I'm going to start over. And granted, the, many of these people who are moving are, for, are forced out because of the level of the violence, but that shows you how desperate things are. 
Yeah, I mean, a, a lay definition we like to use for refugee is somebody who can't go home. So mm -hmm. imagine today when your work's over, you haven't got a home to go home to. What do you do? Where do you go? And all you've got is what you've got with you. Uh, you know, we would meet with, uh, and we, we constantly, we, we have several projects we, we can talk about later, places mm -hmm. that we're doing a lot of uh, direct contact with folks uh, within and went out with outside the uh, outside of the country. But uh, I remember one group that we met with and just uh, a whole community and people were bringing out their, these were families and they weren't whole families. They were maybe mother with kids, maybe an old couple with some of the grandkids. You saw families that, you know, had 40, 30 kids with them and they didn't belong to them, but they would just pick them up along the way because it, it, when they were walking out, you know, people got separated and, and we were sitting with this group and every one of them started to bring out these keychains and holding them up. And I didn't realize what was going on. And, and one of our guys told me, he said, they're, they're showing you their house keys. They locked up their houses and they left and they're holding on to those keys. They, they don't think they can go back. They don't even know if the homes are still there. Probably not there. And uh, but they but that's kind of their last hope that, you know, maybe I can go home. And in reality, they probably know they can't go home because they're moving on. They're finding a place and, and it's been destroyed. Uh, but just seeing inspiration in their eyes and, and you and I not ever really having a way to relate to that, that we, we haven't lost everything like they have. Yeah, it's it's a pretty um, tragic human story in a lot of ways. So so BRG is there and organizations like that are there. Um, I have a friend who's a missionary in Albania who I'm in contact with periodically, and there really is not only a terrific ministry going on, but really some creative stuff going on, too. I, I've, the Albanian missionary tells me the story of um, how they give um, – uh, cell phones to people who are arriving with Bibles in them and that kind of thing, and they tell them ahead of time, you know, this has a Bible in it, do you mind? No, and then they turn around and find them reading, you know, they're reading the Bible because it's it's one of the few things they have they can relate to that's in their language, that kind of thing. It's it's an interesting uh, interesting phenomenon. So what? tell us about what BRG does. Well, uh, uh, BGR. B, sorry, BGR. Sorry. <laughs> okay. Yeah. No worries. Yeah. Yeah, I get it. Yeah. Sometimes, uh, BGR is is uh, working in, with about seventeen current projects right now in about eight or nine different countries. Um, we we're doing quite a bit with uh, primary needs such as basic food, water, uh, and shelter needs, and health and hygiene work as well. Uh, so uh, we we have work going in almost all of those countries and places that that I mentioned earlier. Uh, working with on ground partners. Sometimes it's a local church. Sometimes it's a local organization. And, and uh, I won't I won't mention who those are, of course, for for security purposes. Uh, but but meeting people at their their point of need, helping them with the basic needs of life. Um, uh, sometimes it is is food packets to help them, uh, you know, just make a transition. Because again. Uh, they're, they're very mobile. A lot of these, you know, 12 to 14 million people, they're very mobile. They can't stay in one place or move into another. They're trying to get to somewhere else. 
uh, health and hygiene uh, kits are very big right now. We're working with, and uh, we have several folks who are going and, and conducting medical health care clinics, other things like that. Another big issue is education. I mean, some of these folks have been on the move for four years now. Their kids have not been in school. Uh, you know, they, they're concerned about safety, but they're also concerned about their children and lack of education. So we have several education projects in different areas as well. Uh, we've got some transitional ministries and projects helping people making transition from one place to another, getting them set up at least in a temporary situation. So, uh, just like just like most uh, uh, groups, we're, we're we're doing a number of things. Um, it doesn't look like there's any real strategy behind it, but but the, the needs are so massive. Uh, for instance, three years ago we thought it would be over, and it's still dragging on. Now we're five to six years into this crisis. Uh, every winter rolls around. We've got these huge needs in terms of winter shelter, clothing, uh, heating, uh, um, 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 fuel, things like that. So. Uh, currently, we'd be uh, we'd be doing almost a, a million dollars worth of projects uh, that are ongoing. So, uh, again, probably a drop in the bucket for the needs that are out there. But every organization I know that's uh, working with these refugees, especially in that area of the world, are, are kind of like us, just scrambling, trying to plug the holes in the dam. Wow. Well, let, let's talk a little bit. Uh, kind of make this. Uh, vivid for people. Someone comes out of a country, out of this kind of situation, and they arrive in in, in, w- in one of these locations. And what what you say they're mobile, but what can they expect? What what kinds of living conditions are they living in, and and what is it that they're facing uh, precisely when they arrive? Uh, Many of them, they don't know anything. They don't know what they're facing. They're just coming because it's better than where they were. And so uh, uh, several of these, you'll see this, you know, you've seen this on the news. It's not been recently on the news, but um, they'll have these uh, middlemen that will promise them to get them out, and they'll take them on boats, and they'll drop them on islands, you know, kind of out in the Mediterranean that are technically, you know, in places like Greece or other, you know, they're tied to that, but they're a long way from the mainland. Let's say that a family does make it to uh, the mainland. Maybe they go into... uh, maybe into a Turkey, maybe they go into a Greece, maybe they go into a a Lebanon. Um, The fortunate ones will have some type of family or business contact. So they're looking for someplace. They've got something that that they can go to. The majority are just basically kind of at the whims of, you know, whatever they find. Uh, BGR, like a lot of other ministries, are finding those folks that are falling through the crack and, and trying to help them with basic needs as they arrive in in areas. Now, we can't be everywhere, but we're in about probably five to ten strategic places and helping uh, like like a lot of other organizations. Um, when, when people here in the United States think about these refugees, most people think, oh, well, there there's refugee camps. Do understand that maybe, maybe one out of ten, maybe one out of ten of these folks leaving that area of the world are in refugee camps. Nine out of ten are just living under bridges. They're living mm. uh, in abandoned buildings. They're they're throwing up 
little tents or whatever they can come, scraps, tarps, whatever, and and trying trying to just find a place to get their 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 kids out of and their families out of the elements. So it's it's pretty dire situation uh, for for the most folks that come out of these areas. And, and I take it there are multiple organizations trying to uh, help and or and and organize, but it's a huge, huge task. There are. There are multiple organizations, the, 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 the uh, United Nations, uh, Refugee Council, various NGOs, non-government organizations like Baptist Global Response, church-based groups. Uh, there's just tons of folks that are helping out. Uh, but it's still pretty much, um, Dr. Bach, it's a drop in the bucket. Now, again, it's, it's one of those drops that, you know, it makes a difference for the folks that that drop gets to. So that's where we get our encouragement as BGR, doing, doing as much as we can, really trying to help folks, uh, trying to model the love of Christ and uh, make Christ known in, in a real critical part in their lives. And, and these are Christians that are coming out. These are Muslims that are coming out. These are, it, you know, the, they're just everybody's being affected, so it's not just one group that's that's being affected. That's an interesting fact. I hadn't heard that before. That it's basically maybe one out of ten that actually has a, a, a refugee space to reside in, and that most are still out there moving around, fending for themselves, and just catching whatever they can as they go. And, and the, the uh, many folks that, that we have talked with personally and that we have ministries among us, they don't want to go into the camps. They're afraid of the camps. Uh, for instance, if you're of a minority group and you go into a country that wants to put you in a camp and that country has been a persecutor of your group historically, you'd be a little bit suspicious of that government, oh, wow. wouldn't you? Yeah. And I'm, I'm not going to say which ones right. for the sake of... Uh, 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 of uh, anyway, uh, but but there are a number of folks that they don't want to go. They're they're afraid for their children, their daughters. Uh, you know, in a camp, you know, the, the security is not is not very well. Uh, they they perceive it not being good. So so they're kind of living outside and on their own. And those are the folks mainly that Baptist Global Response and many organizations are trying to reach and trying to help. They're kind of invisible. Hmm. hmm. So. Um, so how does one? How do you find them? <laughs> how do you? How do you? How does that work? Well, we're very fortunate. We have pre-existing on-ground partners in in most of these areas that we've worked with. I mean, uh, that area of the world, we we've done development work years and years and years uh, before any of this crisis hit. And so, uh, having those relationships. And having those uh, boots on ground, having those eyes out there, it's been kind of uh, uh, a godsend to be able to work with folks, uh, national believers and others, uh, who, who kind of are the ones that establish those relationships and find those folks. So uh, we're, we're very fortunate in having great trusted partners um, um, who help us minister and reach into and then mobilize resources here from the United States where those people, financial resources or goods uh, to those who are in need. Do, do these people who help you, do they just kind of trip on to these folks or are there places where they tend to come and collect them and become aware of what their situation is and then encourage them to, to connect with you? How exactly does that work? Yeah, yeah, both and. Uh, mm -hmm. Also remember that these are folks living up in these areas, the border areas. 
so you can't trip onto them. They're they're tripping over you. They're coming out. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I've been in several of these border areas um, uh, in three different countries, and uh, you know you don't have to walk very far to find uh, a tent city or a group living under a bridge. So it's pretty obvious who these folks are, and uh, it's pretty easy to find. This episode is brought to you by Our Daily Bread Ministries, a global media organization that makes the life-changing wisdom of the Bible understandable and accessible to all. As a part of that mission, Where You're From is a podcast for those who believe it's important to stop and listen before we speak. Join us on each episode as we ask another Christian thought leader, Where You're From, and discover how their life experiences and expertise even if we may disagree with something they say, offers us important perspectives worth thinking about. To see our list of guests, visit whereyou'refrom.org today. That's whereyafrom.org. I'm Russell Berry reminding you that it's not just about where you're at, but it's also about where you're from. So what happens to a person who comes into contact with your organization? What, What happens next for them? Well, uh, usually a person comes, a family, and you're not talking about one or two. I mean, usually you're going to be dealing with a community because people actually come out, but they begin to group in communities. So so it, it would be several folks that would come in contact with us. One of the things we want to do is listen to their story, uh, give them the dignity to tell the story. And, and the stories are horrible. The to- stories will just tear your heart out. Mm-hmm. You'll hear stories of family separated. I, I was in a community uh, on the Syrian border uh, about a year ago, and and every family that we visited, they were they 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 had lost was they'd say, "Have you seen my brother? Have you seen my husband?" Uh, every one of them, they would they would show you their scars. Children that were traumatized who wouldn't quit crying because the. Uh, uh, Eardrums had ruptured from the bombs, uh, you know, riddled with shrapnel. Everybody had had, you know, shrapnel scars. And and they were just living in this kind of a tent community out in the area that, you know, that nobody wanted to be on. And and uh, and, and, and every need you could imagine, food, water, clothing, winter coming on, every need you can imagine was there. So so what did we do? We listened to their stories. We listened to their needs. Uh Interesting. People without food were asking, first of all, can you find my husband? Can you find my brother? And you just cry. Your heart breaks because, you know, we don't know where they are either. Uh, but then we keep on listening and we help them with the, the basics, uh, get them some better tarps or tents, something to insulate their home. Um, uh, help them with uh, communications. It might be, you know, it might be getting them some phone cards, helping them definitely with food and the basics of water, and, and doing this all in the name of Christ in a way that shows the love of Christ so that we, we can also speak truth and hope into their lives. Hmm. And so, uh, and as you said, some of these people are moving, so, so you have them for a time and release them, or do you, uh, do you actually begin to help them uh, figure out uh, where they can possibly go uh, more permanently? Well, that's a good question, Dr. Bob. Uh, a, a few of them, they're, they're moving on. We don't control where they go. I mean, you might show up tomorrow and you've been working with the family and they're just gone and nobody knows where they are. A whole family group. It's, you know, it's not usually one or two people. Mm-hmm. They, they, they move in groups. Part of it is for safety. Part of it is the extended family is a lot larger than the concept of an extended family here in the West. Um, 
so, so we would be helping them, uh, those that would stay in an area, maybe to assimilate. We might do some job skills training. We do a few of those uh, type projects. We might do some help with them getting back in to set up a small micro business. You know, there's enterprise everywhere you go. Even in a makeshift refugee camp, mm-hmm. there's going to be enterprise going on. People are going to start buying and selling. They're going to start start and open up small stores and things like that. Uh, that that would be the smaller number of folks that we're working with because very few of them are going to stabilize in the area at one time. Now, it's for for a long period of time, you would you would find. Excuse me, just a second. Mm-hmm. Uh, I apologize for that. No uh, you would find that um, some of those uh, folks that are, are relocated uh, in these areas, uh, they think they're going home. I mean, they still have the hope. Two or three years ago, just about everybody we would come with on these border areas, they'd say, we're going home tomorrow. We're going home tomorrow. They've been out for two years. Hmm. Today, now, three or four years later, we're starting to see that they're beginning to resign themselves. No, we're not going home. So we've got to find a way to be able to survive. Money has run out. Resources have run out. The the good nature of those that are letting us stay here. Uh, and so, so we're starting to work more and more with some strategies, some longer-term strategies for folks who are now beginning to see that they can't go home. Interesting. That actually was my next question is, okay, so you've got them, you've you you've received them, you've kind of uh, given them the basic food and clothing that they might need, that kind of thing, some shelter, and they realize um, they're not going home, but they don't have any place to go necessarily. So how does that work? Are, are organizations beginning to work on the on the placement side of the problem, or, or or are they just so busy caring for the people still coming out that that that's not still happening? Uh, that's a good question. That's a hard question. I would say that most of us are so busy, it, it's hard to deal with the other. The other side is that placement side really has a lot more to do with governments, mm-hmm. and and it has to do with um, uh, uh, intergovernment agencies. And so there are a lot of us that would cooperate with, but once it starts into that arena, then that becomes a more of a political issue. And uh, and like I said, you know, we're talking about so many refugees that are coming out. The official number is lower because a certain way that you qualify to become a United Nations refugee, and there's so many quotas and there's countries. It's, it's a very complicated question. Yeah, because uh, because everybody, if if you're dealing with absorption of people who are moving, the countries to which they can't all go to the same place. Right. So so then you got to figure out. All right. Uh, then who, where are they going to go, and how many is each country going to take, and all that kind of right. stuff. And that's that's the upheaval side that we're seeing now in Europe, is the effect right. of that. It, it, that's the wave that comes with this wave of people is, all right, now who's going to, where are these people going to go, and who's going to be willing to take care of them, that kind of thing. That, and that raises a whole other set of issues um, kind of on the other side, and that is, um, the attitude, uh, uh, the social attitude of countries um, that are faced with the question, or perhaps being asked, "Can you help?" Right. That's a, that's a good question. Let me, let me give a great example on that one, and I'll use my my, my home country, 
that's near and dear to my heart, the United States. You know, you know the, 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 the wide range of emotions here in the United States. Uh, let's talk about Syrian refugees. Uh, we're looking at maybe the first wave really coming in here to the U.S. just this year. It's been a long process for them to go. Any, anytime a, a refugee, a, a true refugee, refugee status comes to, a person comes to the U.S., there, there's a long process that they go through. Of course, if you look at the news, you know, they're coming in by the millions. Uh, what we understand is that this year, if things go well, the U.S. will probably take in sixty to 70,000 global refugees. About 10,000 of those are slated to be Syrian, uh, from the Syrian crisis. Could mm-hmm. be Syria, northern Iraq, could be Kurdish, you know, different, different people groups. So, so we're looking at just this year, maybe 10,000 coming to the United States and maybe for the next, uh, next couple of years about that, that same number. So there's 10,000 out of 14 million. And, and you can see our country and our culture just completely torn up over that. Just a small, not even a drop in the bucket percent of a percent mm-hmm. of a percent that actually would be coming here. So, so now multiply that by a hundred or a thousand times if you're a government like a country like Germany or, or, or the Netherlands that are seeing hundreds of thousands coming in. It's an extremely complicated question. It's a very emotional one that, you know, you've got, it's so polarized over here, mm-hmm. you know, those that don't want over here that want to. So um, uh, I, I don't know how to answer your question. I just know that it's a, it's a very emotional answer for most people. And the, and the discussion an on this has actually uh, been very disruptive for European politics that, yeah. uh, um, that we've, we've seen a rise of what's been described as far right, but basically nationalist kinds of approaches to these questions that um, that don't want to absorb these people, but everybody's faced with the question, what do you, what do you, what do, you do with them? I mean, um, it's, it's, a, it's a human need problem of massive scale. And you mentioned the people who are coming out, that they're mixtures, that there are Christians, that there are Muslims. You've mentioned the Kurds as a part of this. So um, one, of the, one of the things that's important in the conversation is to realize that you aren't uh, – this isn't a monochrome uh, uh, migration, if I can say it that way, where everybody's Absolutely. coming from the same place. And some of the people who are looking to be displaced are being displaced because of who they are. That's absolutely, and and I would say uh, I, I can't. I mean, I, I'm not a very smart man. Uh, I can't really say what government should do or don't do. Mm-hmm. And uh, but I can say that as a follower of Jesus Christ, and when we look at the Bible, there is a special place in God's heart for the widows, for mm-hmm. the orphans, and mm-hmm. for the strangers, mm-hmm. for those who are, are displaced, and for those who can't take care of themselves. And what what a wonderful, wonderful testimony. If the church, if the church in Europe, if the church in the United States, if the church wherever would stand up and say, you know, what a Kairos moment to reach to those who are hurting, homeless and hopeless and and stand up and say, the church is going to do something about this. This might be a defining moment for us as followers of Jesus Christ. Uh, it It could be a bad defining moment if the church stands up and says, you know, we're afraid of these people and we don't want anything to do with them. Uh, I, I hate to think if Jesus said that about sinners and said that about people who were different than him, you know, yeah. but, but he was one that was open in arms and welcoming. I'm not saying it's going to be easy. I'm not going to say it's going to be fraught with problems and issues. 
issues. Uh, but I am saying that what a wonderful, what a wonderful time for the church to step up and be the people of God and, and open our arms to these strangers and care for those who can't care for themselves. And, and what a wonderful way to minister and to make Christ known in both our, our word and in the deeds that we do. Yeah, absolutely. I'm going to read through a series of texts here because I think that um, some people don't realize how deeply embedded this theme is in Scripture. Absolutely. Um, uh, Exodus 23.9, I'm just going to go through a series of them one after another just kind of like bullet points do not oppress an alien you yourselves know how it feels to be aliens because you were aliens in egypt or leviticus 1934 you shall love the alien as yourself for you are aliens in egypt or exodus 22:21. do not mistreat or oppress an alien for you are an alien in egypt deuteronomy 10:19 says the same kind of thing using the refrain for you are aliens in the land of egypt numbers 15:15. the community is to have the same rules for you and for the alien living among you. This is a lasting ordinance for generations to come. And it, it's not just, you know, in the in the Torah, it's it's also in the Proverbs and in the prophets. Proverbs thirty one nine, defend the rights of the poor and the needy. Micah six eight, very famous passage. He has told you, O oh man, what is good and what the Lord really wants from you. He wants you to promote justice, to be faithful, to live obediently before your God. Zechariah 7, 9 and 10, the Lord who rules over all says, exercise true judgment, show brotherhood and compassion to each other. You must not oppress the widow, the orphan, the alien, the poor, nor should anyone secretly plot evil against his fellow human being. I mean, those passages are pretty clear, and there's a, there's a whole raft of them. Uh, um, uh, we could, I mean, I could continue to go on. Here's another one, Deuteronomy 27:19. Cursed be anyone who withholds the justice due to the immigrant, the fatherless, the widow, then all the people shall say, Amen. Oh, I get that. I guess Amen. I, I guess I get Amen. to end with a benediction there at the end. <laughs> but it's it, those are important series of passages showing uh, a real core ethic that is um, invoked and called for by the people of God when uh, when we face these kinds of situations, which means that we have to sit down and wrestle with the difficulties that they raise for us. But um, the one position that one shouldn't take is one of indifference or, uh, or uh, don't bother me with this. Well, and, and, and you and I, as followers of Jesus Christ, I mean, our, our whole our whole purpose is making Christ known to to a world in need, uh, to a lost and a dying world, and 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 here's the thing: is for years we have prayed for these areas of the world. We've prayed for them, and we prayed for God to open up the doors. And all of a sudden, now they're coming out, and they're coming to us. And and, and, and again, like I said, what a Kairos moment for us to make Christ known in, in in the deeds and caring for those who are in need, and giving food, and giving a cup of cold water and sharing the truth of who is the living water, who is the bread of life. I, I'm just saying that I, I hope that we don't wake up 20, 30 years from now as a church, if, if, we're, uh, if you and I are still around, you know. Uh, I hope we don't wake up and say, you know, that th- this was a moment that God brought about to make His glory known among the nations, and we failed to take the opportunity to do that. I, I think of the story in John chapter 9 when Jesus is walking out of the temple complex. Uh, the Pharisees are trying to stone Him to death. He walks out of the temple, and you know they, they've been through this traumatic experience, and the first thing He sees is this man born blind. And, and the disciple says, well, who was it that sinned, this man 
or himself that sinned, you know, that he was born blind. And Jesus said, you missed the whole point. Mm -hmm. This man was born blind so that the glory of God, the work of God, might be made known in his life. And I, and I think that all of this is happening. This, Thank you for bringing up this topic and having this podcast about this is because this is this is that moment that, that, that this is a chance for the glory of God to be made known in such a mighty way among these refugees and, and to the rest of the world that said, we care. Now, there's a lot of religions and a lot of governments in the world that basically don't care about human life. The church of Jesus Christ stood up and said, we care because every person is valuable to God, and every person ought to have a chance to know Him and have a relationship with Him. This is our time to do that. Now well, I'm preaching. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, well, I, you know, I, I, this is a, an important topic, in it, and you, uh, you tend to hear it only in terms of the political dimensions of it and the human dimension of it very much gets lost, and it's the human dimension into which the church is very well equipped to step in and, and, and do something about it. In fact, as is often the case, if it weren't for many uh, caring organizations, many of which are, uh, are Christian-motivated, uh, this problem would be far, far worse than what it is. Well, it, that's true. And, and I, I understand, at least a part, I understand the political situation. I understand the fear. I, I've been in many of these areas of the world, and, and fear is, is a real thing. There's a lot of things that, that, that generate that fear, this fear of these people are going to come and they're going to take over and they're going to. But I also understand the fear of people going into eternity and not knowing or not having a chance to know who Jesus Christ is. And to me, that should be the greater fear for the church. Hmm. Hmm. It's terrific. Well, uh, uh, one last set of questions here. So, um, so we've talked about this kind of from the standpoint of the person coming out, from the organizations that are trying to help them, the issues of placement, which obviously are very, very difficult. We've talked about the biblical dimensions of this. Um, let's ask some practical questions. Okay, I'm sitting here in Dallas, Texas, talking to you, and the question is, all right, so how, how do I get involved, or what ways can I be supportive? What ways can the church be supportive in these kinds of efforts? Obviously, to some degree, that's already happening because you're a member of an organization that a denomination is behind and put its weight behind. But individually, what, is, what does this look like? What advice do you have for us? I would say that one of the best places that an individual follower of Christ could start would be prayer. You know, praying and asking God to open up their hearts to what He's doing. You know, I think about the story of Habakkuk, who's complaining to God all the time about, you know, why is this injustice? Why this happened? Just step back and say it, because God said, you know, I'm going to do things that you'll never believe, utterly amazing, that are going to be done among the nations. And stepping back and saying, God, what are you doing? in this time. You know, all of this is going on, this turmoil in the world, because in the midst of this, you and I know God's not stepped down from His throne. He's not surprised by ISIS. He's not surprised by corrupt governments or good governments, because He's God. He's all-knowing. So God, God's doing something in this time. So pray. Then pray for those who are in, in need, and pray for those who are suffering, these 12 to, to 14 million people. These, these are not Muslims, these are not cultural Christians, these are not these are people with families, with with children that they want to see grow up and get an education and go to school and get married and, and have grandkids, you know, for them. So pray 
I would say to pray and pray for uh, God to show them what he's doing. Pray for them and for the people that are in need. Um, I would invite people to go to our website. I'm not trying to be uh, self-promoting here, but uh, go BGR.org and, and, and take a look at some daily prayer requests that we'll have up there for, for how they can pray and be involved in this. Uh, then I would say, you know, let God speak to you. It might be it might be going and getting involved in meeting needs of refugees. They could be refugees in your backyard. Doesn't have to be Syrian refugees. They can be the nations who have come to your town uh, and you get involved in their lives. It could be getting on a plane and going to one of these project areas and serving through an organization like Baptist Global Response or, or the hundreds or others that are out there. And then I would also pray about, you know, what would God be leading you to, to maybe do in terms of giving to, to help support those ministries, to provide provide food, to provide water, to provide shelter. And uh, there, there's a lot of ways, a lot of channels to help through your local church, uh, through whatever your convention denomination is, or maybe through the favorite charity of your choice. There's a lot of good ways to help. Let me ask you what will sound like a strange question, but I, but it's, it's popped in my head, and that's dangerous because once it's there, it kind of lingers. And it goes something like this. What do you think people are hearing about this topic? that uh, is really static. It, 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 it shouldn't be what they're hearing. And what is it that they're not hearing that they need to hear? So it's on both sides of that spectrum. Uh, uh, that, that's, that's a good question. I'm not sure I've got a great answer um, off the top of my head. I, I'd say – I, th I say the static part is the inertia mm -hmm. uh, of it. You know, it's it's been going on for five years, and people get tired. They get tired. Uh, they get overloaded, and and you know, uh, because we don't hear it, you know, the news it runs cycles and all kinds of things. And so, if it's out of the sight, out of mind, we just don't think about it. The thing that isn't changing is that this need is continuing to grow and these people and the thing i want them to remember is this is not 12 to 14 million people these are these are mothers these are fathers these are children who don't have any choice in the matter. And and, and again, talking to them, they, they could care less whether it's ISIS shooting at them or a friendly government or if it's someone from the outside. It's somebody shooting at them. It's it's these bombs going off in the market, uh, hearing story after story of, you know, daddy went to go get food and he didn't come home. And so we fled because we don't know what happened to him. Uh, so th these are real people with real needs and, and real suffering. And and these are folks that are created in the image of God that deserve us at least, at the very least, praying for them, but really doing something to help them in their need and making Christ known in their lives. Well, uh, it's a terrific piece of advice, and I really appreciate you taking the time to walk us through this and to have us think about it in kind of an initial way. Uh, it's, it's a discussion we've long wanted to have on the Table podcast. Uh, because I think hearing the human dimensions of the story and the problem is something that you don't often get to hear. What you often hear are the fights about this or the government struggles or the policy issues that are tied to it, but these are very real people is what you're telling us who are in desperate straits and oftentimes it's the organizations that come out of the church that are best equipped to help them yeah. most fully. Um, to deal with this. So I really yeah. do appreciate you taking the time to be with us and helping us um, think through this. 
Thank you, Doctor. I appreciate the privilege and the opportunity to be with you. Well, and 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 we're going to do more on this. This is a topic that's not going away. As yep. as you said, it's growing and getting bigger, and so we'll be uh, paying more attention to it and the various aspects of it because it is a very very complicated topic that raises all kinds of interesting issues that we have to reflect on. Again, thanks for for being a part of this and and joining us today, and we thank you for joining us on the table, and we really do hope that this topic has uh, stimulated you um, to love and good deeds, to thinking about how it is that we can serve our fellow man in deep, deep need in the midst of what is probably one of the greatest crises that our world is facing in terms of human need in the current time. And we hope you'll join us again soon on the table. Thanks for listening to The Table Podcast. For more podcasts like this one, visit dts.edu slash the table. Dallas Theological Seminary. Teach truth. Love well.